Hi, welcome to episode one of the That Girl Zine podcast. So um, I'm just going to read some of my old zines and that's what the podcast is going to be. So I'm going to begin with episode 12 because why wouldn't you begin with episode 12? It is my trip to India. So here we go. At the height of the dot-com empire, I was in charge of the e-commerce support of a major web portal. I was inundated with furious customers Christmas of 1999. I was still a temp at my job, so I left three days before Christmas to have the managers scrambling to pick up my slack. A few months later, I was given a small staff of customer service reps to handle the bulk of the e-commerce support via email, live chat, etc., Since the reps were outsourced from a small office in India, I was assigned the project of surveying their responses to check for grammar and cultural mistakes. Each rep was given an American name like Susie instead of their given name, Shushmita. This was to keep the confusion down when Joe Customer hurled doubts and fears at our company for a digital camera that got lost in the mail. British spellings and three-syllable names send off warning bells in the mind of your average consumer. However, the managers could not understand the thick accents of the reps, mixed with the four-second delay of the international phone lines and the static produced by your normal digital phone on the speaker function. I wound up arbitrating the conference calls, since I was the only one who could understand the reps and was sensitive enough to translate the corporate gobbledygook my manager spoke to the reps. So I was promoted to first contact supervisor. The responsibility was flattering, but better was the fact that my job became chatting via instant messenger with a bunch of kids running the graveyard shift over in some far-off land. I had more money than I knew what to do with. I did not have expensive tastes. I owned no car. I lived in a punk house in the mission with nominal rent, so I decided to enjoy my money in a more constructive way. Rather than following suit of my other dot-com brothers and sisters, getting into Banana Republic clothes, buying the newest tech gadgets, etc., I decided I was going to see the world, one two-week vacation at a time. My first stop was Australia. As a zine editor, my choices for travel had to be innovative. A trip to Rome or London would not do. I decided to fly to Florida, take a bus to Melbourne, Florida, and then I would take a flight to Melbourne, Australia. An interesting zine idea. Melbourne to Melbourne, you see. And two places I never would dream of visiting. Florida and Australia. Up to this point, I was more of an Iron Curtain kind of gal. The only overseas travel I conducted was to the Soviet Union, when it was indeed Soviet, and Eastern Europe after the fall of communism. I figured some good time, warm weather, western lands were on the horizon. Imagine a conference call one day, adorable clipped British accents vibrating from a three-pronged speakerphone. Yeah, I'm going to Australia. Why are you going there? I've never been there before. Have you ever been to India? No, duh. Well, why don't you come here then? You have friends here. How far is India from Australia? Very far. At least a half day's travel. Well, maybe I can do both. I highly doubt it. It would be very costly. You should just come here. Maybe. Maybe no. You should come to India. We will roll out the red carpet. 
you will not leave disappointed. And that's how I wound up in India. By some bizarre twist of events, I actually had friends in India, people I wanted to meet, people who wanted to show me around. In Australia, I knew maybe two or three zine readers who seemed a bit incredulous that I wanted to visit. The Indian kids kept sending me travel itineraries that they wanted to take me on. The jungles, the ruins, the temples. I asked my manager for the time off. Instead, she decided to concoct a plan to get me, her, and a company writer to India on the company's dime. We were going to go to prep the reps for next Christmas by giving them a hands-on presentation of what we expected. John would do some American grammar and spelling workshops. I would be giving some seminars on proper customer service techniques. Choke, choke, choke. The mind boggles, as I recall this little fact. She would oversee the whole thing, of course, as the manager. She would ensure that we were the proper representatives of our company and that we weren't expense reporting elephant rides and bottles of Kingfisher. Tragedy struck as the only time my manager could go was the only time that my improv comedy troupe was having our last shows. For once in my life, I was responsible and stuck to my commitment to Johnny Katz. Pam canceled the trip to India. Everyone on both sides of the world was pissed at me, but I figured I needed to tend my karma. Flaking on the shows would have guaranteed a plane crash for us somewhere over the Philippines. Tragedy struck deeper as the weeks went, wore on. The dot-com boom collapsed into a dot-com bust as the NASDAQ took a dive, and all the investors took two steps back, washing their hands of any involvement in the oversaturated internet market. A black cloud fell over downtown San Francisco. What was once an all-expense-paid trip to India became a bitter fight for some time off and some minor reimbursements. Pam didn't want to grant me the vacation time. I threatened to quit, but I offered a compromise. I would go to India for two weeks vacation and one week's work. I would spend my last week there doing the training the three of us were going to do. I would not ask for airfare, but I would ask for lodging and meals to be reimbursed those five days. If not, I was going to India anyway. And heck, they've got a dot-com boom still booming out there, so I might not come back until the visa ran out. She reluctantly agreed. She also agreed to let me move to L.A. and work in the Burbank office, basically under absolutely no in-person supervision. She also gave me a raise. Boy, those were some good times, let me tell you. I spent the next few weeks trying to devour as much information about India as possible. I rented Gandhi and the story of Apu, but couldn't make it through either. I bought N.R. Narayan books and purchased every single Lonely Planet guide about India on my shiny platinum American Express card. I didn't quite know what to expect. I imagined it to be a little bit like Mexico, warm, slightly run down, beautiful, but mellow. Somewhat disorienting, but nothing catastrophic. I decided to fly into Chennai, Madras, since it was cheaper than flying directly to Bangalore, where the rep's headquarters were located. Chennai is a coastal town, so I imagined cozy seaside nooks and balmy beaches where one could relax and enjoy a completely different kind of vacation. I told the kids about my plans. I would spend a few days soaking up Chennai before I took the train cross-country to Bangalore. They seemed uncertain of my ability to enjoy myself in Chennai. They were worried about me finding my way to Bangalore. 
You know that India is two-thirds the size of the U.S. Traveling to Bangalore from Chennai is no simple task. But I assured them that I was in tight with train travel, having been on trains in the U.S., Canada, Russia, Hungary, etc. be no problem. I figured the only trouble I would have was leaving Chennai. They even had Bollywood studios there, Bollywood being the Indian film industry, responsible for producing three-fourths of the world's movies. A Bollywood flick is more likely than a sucker to be born in these parts. Beaches, Bollywood, old churches and museums. It sounded like an eastern version of L.A. I bought a Hindi phrase book and returned it, since the kids told me, after all, that everyone spoke English in India since it was under British rule under Gandhi. I bought a History of India paperback, but couldn't get interested, since I have little to no interest in the caste system or the importance of religion to political turmoil. I met a girl at a bar who Levi's had sent to India, good old sweatshops. She had spent only two days there and was only shuttled from her hotel room to the Levi's plant via taxi, so she never got to walk the streets or eat in a restaurant or go to the cinema. But she said that her life was completely changed those 48 hours in India, even if she was practically utterly removed from all contact with the place. She kept shaking her head and telling me that it would be the trip of a lifetime, that I had to take tons of pictures, that I should bring a Polaroid so when I meet people, I can take a Polaroid with them and give them the picture as a present. Almost no one has a camera there, so if you give them a picture of themselves, you're giving them a really unique and precious gift, she said. What a load of crap, I thought. Here, you poor thing, let me bestow the gift of photography onto you. A Polaroid, no less. Maybe I should give them an eye zone. How indie rock. I found myself scrambling for a doctor to give me my first physical since college. The only doctors I ever saw were chiropractors or gynecologists, so I was at a loss of finding someone to just check my glands and to give me a polio vaccination. I decided to stick to my neighborhood, the Mission, a 10-years-hip neighborhood where all the white artist kids still saw their doctors in Russian Hill or Stonestown. The medical community in the Mission still caters to the very working class, so my ear, nose, and throat doctor, Dr. Barrios, a 70-something Salvadorian immigrant, still wore a reflective mirror headband. He kept teasing me about getting married and having babies. He referred to me as this little girl. The general doctor was Dr. Foresti Lorente, a Polish immigrant who misspelled keopectate on a slip of paper she gave me. She told me I was honestly, truly big-boned, circling my wrist with her fingers and clucking her tongue. She gave me the polio vaccine, but hadn't the foggiest idea where I would go to receive a prescription for malaria pills or shots to combat meningitis. Nice doctor. No wonder all my friends steered clear of St. Luke's, never mind the 50 minutes I had to wait in the waiting room each time as all the other prospective patients talked shit about me in Spanish. After a tussle with the health department, I stumbled along an overseas health clinic that specialized in shots for the worldly traveler. They didn't blink an eye when I presented them with a long list of shots, pill requests, and vaccinations. They stuck me with needles full of dead diseases until I had a band-aid and a cotton ball covering most of my biceps. I had to come back three times to make sure I didn't develop jaundice for booster shots and so they could ream me out of $350 in medical fees, not covered by insurance, 
since you were willingly throwing yourself into a yellow fever area. And preventive medicine is a four-letter word to Cigna. I bought the most reasonably priced travel gear, locks for my bags, a water container, water purifying tablets, an expensive camera, loads of film. I braved Fisherman's Wharf for San Francisco souvenirs for the kids, most of who would never leave India their entire lives. I moved back in with my folks and surround myself with the kind of love and affection only one's family could provide. As my departure date neared, the fear in me began to build. Was it too much for my system to relocate me and all my belongings, then throw myself into unknown worlds a week later? I was enjoying laying out by the pool, getting reacquainted with my siblings, and hanging out with my dogs. Travel seemed superfluous at this point, but I figured I needed something to show for my obnoxious job as a doc homie, something cool and expensive that I could never have afforded with my theater concession salary. The flight was $2,800 with advance notice. Surely I could have backed out, but what would I have done with a 2800 credit on Singapore Airlines? To ready myself for the trip, I found a stash of Persian 7 inches I had bought at Goodwill. These Persian dudes run the fresh produce shop by my house, so they were always donating the coolest records and books to the local thrift shops. I put on my traveler's backpack and a straw cowboy hat, since I am so very fond of over-exaggerating my Americanness when I travel, and I put on a record. The whiny sounds of a santour shot out of my little speakers. A woman's high-pitched voice began to fill the room. She was singing unfamiliar words in an unfamiliar way. I began to walk around the room, slowly, pretending I was lost in a railway station, looking for a map. As the tempo quickened and the woman's voice became more surreal to me, I freaked. I flipped my lid. I caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I looked so pasty pale white in the mirror. I looked scared and confused, and that cowboy hat made me look ridiculous. I ripped the hat off my head and wrestled out of the intricate shoulder straps of the backpack. Belts, straps, Velcro, etc. What am I doing? I stared at my little sister, chuckling at me on my bed. What am I going to do? I was beside myself with uncertainty. You'll be fine, she laughed. It had hit me for the first time. This wasn't going to be Mexico, where the familiar sounds of Spanish coated me like a warm, comfortable electric blanket. Mariachi music was as sweet on the ears as my mother's oldies station. This wasn't Russia, where I'd be protected by the U.S. government in my pressed uniform as a teenage ambassador from a Southern California high school. This wasn't Eastern Europe, a stone's throw from the home of Mozart where everyone wore jeans and listened to bad hip-hop. This was India. No joke. This was going to be nuts. I leave everything to the last minute, so I spent my last few hours at home recording the narrative for a small press novel on my four-track. The author found me on alt-zines and asked me to do the narration for the audio version for a book about a young, cynical, nasty, and depressed young woman from upstate New York. I did, spending many early mornings sitting on the floor of the bathroom, where the acoustics were just right, eking out a chapter at a time while my noisy roommates slept off their hangovers. I promised the author the finished product before I left the country, just in case I died in a fiery wreck. At least I'd have one last contribution to society to remember me by. You could say I was in denial. Concentrating on not stuttering and pronouncing unfamiliar New York suburbs with the correct intonation, 
instead of coming instead of coming to grips with the fact that I was about to embark on an impressive journey. With little more than a couple credit cards, my smarmy street smarts, and a tentative friendship with half a dozen customer service reps who I talked to on the phone maybe six times total. Yeah, that hit me once we made it to LAX. Though my flight was leaving at one in the morning, both my parents wanted to come. They hung back as I tried to figure out what line to stand in, whether I had to get x-rayed and other traveling hassles. Funny thing about the international wing of LAX, there are no Americans. There are no white people. And I realized that, yes, that line with all the solemn-looking women dressed in saris with dark-eyed mustache, dark-shirted husbands was indeed my line. I guess I was in a lonely planet frame of mind, thinking that half the line would be wisecracking, backpack-sporting road warriors like myself, not really realizing that going to India for pleasure isn't at the top of most sassy 20-somethings list of places to go or something. Everyone was going home or visiting family. Not even one misplaced tall blonde white guy in a tie on a business trip. Nothing. This was definitely going to be something. I envy you, my dad said, as we spent two hours inside the terminal, waiting for my flight to be called. Here you go, I replied, pushing my plane ticket at him, not entirely kidding. I gave him a weak smile. Why couldn't I be normal and take a quick trip around Europe? Man, I should have been checking out museums, drinking coffee in little cafes, acting like a normal person. And what did I know about India? Not much, except that I never order anything but alu gobi, and the little I gleaned from the onslaught of books and movies I studied after buying my plane ticket. My compliments to Singapore Air. I don't know how a person can be crammed in a tiny space for 13 hours and still come out with pancake-fresh makeup, changing their outfit six times, always with perfect geisha hair and gigantic red lip smiles. The men wore tuxedos. I ached for hot towels. My ankles swelled. My shoes didn't fit right. I was bored with writing, bored with edited movies. Our little plane blinked on the map on the giant screen before us. But if you watched it, it never seemed to make progress across the Pacific. Just a huge blue screen with a tiny yellow plane. No islands, no sea dragons, just cloud and blue and blue and blue. Taiwan. We arrived Taiwan Chiang Kai-shek Airport at 5 a.m. There were more white people hanging out at Chiang Kai-shek at 5 a.m. than LAX at 11 p.m. I don't know what that means. I think they were all German. Slightly balding with tiny glasses and backpacks with many straps. All the shops were closed covered by gray tarps, so I looked at the advertisements. Cindy Crawford sells watches, and the most popular brand of cigarettes is called Long Life. Villagers in rice hats framed by an orange sunset with Long Life written in scrawly white cursive across the top. Irony runs rampant in Taiwan. The security guards glared at me when I tried to take a picture. I spent the entire layover taking shots with the photo blaster. The vending machines were fascinating. The ads, the signs... But I still got the feeling that Chiang Kai-shek was the St. Louis of the Orient, just a little drab connecting point between all the really intense and electrifying airports. I passed by some travelers about four times, none of us acknowledging each other. I suddenly realized I am the only person traveling alone. I am angry with my friends for being too noble to sell out and get internet jobs so they can have play money with me. 
I arrive way too early before check-in and collapse in a heap. Singapore. Mm, I hated Singapore. It's so clean, so nice, so rich. It reminds me of the worst parts of America. One big shopping mall. This is hardly an adventure. Luckily, it was only a five-hour layover. I met up with my friend Tim, who distributes 20 bus around town for me. Turns out he's 16 years old and still in high school. I had to fend for myself till school broke. I took the bus into town and marveled at the pleasant weather and the agreeable bus system. I was somewhat successful in the souvenir department. I found a Market Street-like tour shop, tour shop with $3 t-shirts for $10. Lots of piney magnets. Singapore is a fine place to live. Get it? You get fined for doing anything considered simply wacky, but not illegal in America, like dancing in public, stuff like that, and postcards. I also found a teen girl accessory shop called Aries, tucked inside a larger underground bookshop called Popular, with all the barrettes and baby clips your heart could desire. I wish I were joking when I said the best part of Singapore is the 7-Elevens. Oddly enough, they were the only reminder that I was not still in the States. On the outside, they look like any old Sev, but inside, they're chock full of rad candy, crazy Hello Kitty paraphernalia, and day glow sodas. Techno music is always on full blast, and good luck reading the rappers. I found a Snickers bar, luckily, but it had almonds in it, and it cost me $1.35. About 80 cents. Tim told me they don't sell gum in Singapore. Remember, this is where the kid got caned for tagging cars, and this is the island where the stewardess warned us, drug trafficking and possession of firearms is punishable by death in Singapore. Have a nice day. You can chew gum, but if you happen to spit it out on the street, they cut out your tongue and feed it to your grandmother in a thick... I met Tim and his friend at the City Hall subway stop. We went to eat in a food court in a mall. I wanted to eat something typically Singapore, and he ordered me some chicken and rice meal. You had to order drinks at a separate counter. A janitor lady yelled at the boys for putting their school bags on the seats next to them. What language is that? I asked. Chinese, they said. What kind? Oh, Mandarin, Tim said. I think he thought I was crazy. I didn't bother asking him all the things I wanted to, like the history of Singapore, its boundaries, culture, etc. I was an ignorant visitor, for sure, and he looked at me weird when I asked him what Malay was. Malaysia, he said matter-of-factly, and probably rolled his eyes. I dragged them shoe shopping because I found the cutest shoes, red, pink leather with thick T-straps and cushy soles. They sat on footstools awkwardly as I loped around the shop looking for a salesperson. It was punishment for taking me record shopping, their favorite pastime. Of course, I think Tim had written me from a review in MRR. The records were pathetic and you had to check in your bags, so I sat at a table and loped. One does not carry a $400 camera and $700 in cash only to check one's bag at a rinky-dink vinyl shop. This is what pen palling is all about. For all intents and purposes, I was quite literally a Western yuppie, young, urban, professional, if you can call tech support a profession, and they were little Asian punk kids digging through seven inches. I love it. We parted ways after he convinced me to eat a curry puff. I got lost, and no one seemed to know their way around town very well. I bought an apple juice to break a $50 bill for the bus, wandering into a Costco-like building. They had 20 different kinds of soy milk in boxes. 
Oh yes, jet lag finally found me, right after we boarded the flight to Madras. I found my little seat by the window, head jerking every 15 seconds from nodding off. Takeoff and landings are the most gratifying parts of flying. I wouldn't sleep through them. An older, salt-and-pepper-haired man took the aisle seat. I was washed over by the sweetest cologne smell. After being stuck on peanut shell in the pocket-crease planes for the last 22 hours, it was intoxicating. He smiled at me, beautiful pearly white teeth, all the more dazzling against his hazelnutty complexion. I couldn't have asked for a more divine aisle mate. That is, until he decided to make me his new best friend. Where are you going? Why are you traveling alone? You are so pretty. You should come stay with me in Madras. I have a huge home. I know many Bollywood producers. I can arrange a studio tour for you. You would love it in Madras. Why would you want to go to Bangalore anyway? Haven't you heard the rioting in Bangalore? Rioting in Bangalore? Now that was a little too much. I have to give this guy credit. He must have loaded pheromones in his cologne because a good portion of me was ready to take that chance to see if Indian boyfriend was feeding me incredible lines or if maybe this was one of those opportunities of a lifetime where you're a day and a half's plane trip from your home and you meet an amazing and charming stranger who sweeps you off your feet. But riots? Come on now. Bangalore is the most westernized city in India, the most quote-unquote civilized city in India. Don't mind me getting all Kipling on ya, sweets. I'm paraphrasing from the post-colonial asshole travel book. So the idea of riots in Bangalore, a nice middle-of-the-road, technologically advanced nook in the middle of India, being under siege, but the coastal, balmy, big-city Madras was safe as a bug in a rug? Smell a rat. And a rat with bad arguments to kidnap me and make me his trophy American wife. Yes, a bandit kidnapped the most loved and famous movie star, Raj Kumar, and the people of Bangalore have been rioting ever since. All the movie houses, temples, and restaurants are closed. Even if you made it there safely, you would have to stay indoors the whole time since everything would be closed. I gave him the, yeah, fucking right, eye before my jet lag conquered my anxiety-tinged hormonal reactions to this playboy, and I passed out while he was in mid-sentence. He woke me a few times. Really, Kelly, you should stay with me in Madras. Damn it, I told him my name. I nudged my passport wallet combo in my front pocket. Still there. Everything goes black. I wake up to the pleading announcements for seat backs, tray tables, etc. My unrequited love has changed seats, but he's left a note on my lap on a napkin. His name, his home number, his handheld number. That's what they call cell phones. I'm swooning. And a few last words of cajoling. I crane my neck above the seats and see him a few seats up. Jealously, I swivel to see whom he's talking to, another pretty blonde white girl on her way to Bangalore, but no. I scan the entire plane, and I realize I'm the only white person, the only woman not in a sari, the only woman not with a man beside her, and definitely the only blonde. The playboy sees me and waves urgently. He makes to get up and come back to our aisle to harass me, but the stewardess stops him as we're about to touch down. They argue, and he gestures to me furiously, as if we're lovers, and it's imperative he hold my hand as we land, else I die of an anxiety attack. She gets him seated and strapped in. I try and decide if this is absolutely hysterical, or if this is a bad, bad sign, 
that I'm going to be swept off my feet the entire three weeks by dashing, distinguished rich guys from the city who reeks so heavenly of musk. I've been and out of liberal politics my whole life, so it's no novel idea to me that I have certain privileges, if you will, as a blonde, blue-eyed white girl, even without my charms and wiles. But this is the first time I felt like a little lost girl in the middle of Asia with no clue and nothing better to do than be some crazy businessman's Western mistress for a few weeks. I kind of like it. And that's it for episode one. Thanks for listening. So thanks for listening to the first episode of the That Girl Zine podcast. I'm hoping to do this more often. Um, thanks to absolutely no sponsors whatsoever. Um, but also shout out to Mari Naomi. She is the one who suggested I do this. I toyed with the idea of doing a YouTube channel where I would read my zines aloud for people, but she's right. I I listen to way more podcasts than I watch YouTube channels. So hopefully you'll enjoy this and we'll do many more. Thanks for listening.